You're listening to DraftKings Network. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Oh, man. So bad. I was watching some show and I was like, oh, Ethan just wrote an article. I'm going to read this article. Pull it up. It's a great story about the New York's. The Empire's Empire State of Mind in New York. There's this little anecdote about Kyrie Irving. And oh my God, Ethan got sacked. Oh, somebody peel him off the turf. Ethan got secondhand sacked, which is now a thing. Yeah, man. Getting sacked is one thing. But now I think we've seen this new phenomenon of the secondhand sack. Explain it. Getting sacked is when you saw it on Ball Sack, the tweet or the graphic, and you went off the graphic and you went online with it or you went on air with it. But the secondhand sack is when someone went on air with it and now you're quoting that someone as the authority. So in the case of Ethan, he didn't fall for an infographic or a tweet. He fell for Olden Polonies. You got to remember. One of the reasons why there's issues between he and Kyrie Irving is because of a statement he made during a party at Steve Nash's house, okay? In front of everybody, Kyrie said, you know, you need to give those MVP trophies back to Kobe. Wow. Really? didn't deserve them. Yes. Said that to Nash at a party at Nash's house. To Steve Nash at Steve Nash's house. And so to me, that was the beginning of the end for the Nets. So, again, there's no leadership anywhere around because they don't respect Steve Nash enough to follow him. And Steve Nash is not, hasn't had enough coaching to be a leader. So that team is just made up. It's just a made-up fantasy. Yes, right. they have talent, but in the playoffs, that's not enough. Mm. Wow. All right, last one for me, Olden. Um, nice nugget, Olden. That's awesome, we by the way. That. Uh, Thanks and, for saving it for us. And because Olden says this to Rob Parker and Chris Broussard, Ethan accepts it as Olden Polonese's first-hand experience rather than Olden Polonese getting sat. And I would totally blast Ethan except for the fact that I was on a show. I'm not going to name the show, but the producer and the other host presented it as, we're going to talk about this next segment. And I said, no, we can't because that's not real. Because he's quoting a fake story. <laughs> My favorite part of the story, I mean, is that Olden put his own spin on it. He raised the stakes a little bit. The ball sack was that Kyrie wanted to see the trophies. And then Olden said, no, he said, you give those back. Oh, wait, are we talking like a telephone? The Kobe part was he raised the stakes, baby. <laughs> oh, wow. See, I didn't know that. I just knew that it was a ball sack report. I didn't know that. Olden put his own balls on it? Is that what you're saying? My assignment. Uncover why the association inspires more conspiracy theories in volume and salience than any other U.S. sport. You've heard of the Illuminati. The truth is out there, but so are lies. 
Your eyes can deceive you. Don't trust them. The NBA has always been controlled by about eight people. Denial is the most predictable of all human responses. If you're only using 10% of your brain, you don't even know that you're using 10% of your brain. The NBA Illuminati. If coincidences are just coincidences, why do they feel so contrived? The Illuminati. But you start to follow the money, and you don't know where the f*** is going to take you. It is unspoken. They have influence among other players. The NBA Illuminati. I don't have time for your convenient ignorance. Maybe I'm a conspiracist now as well. That's but all it took. Oh, we got books, we got schools. You saw a video on YouTube. <laughs> Why am I, sir? You've never used them before. We are the basketball Illuminati. <laughs> This is Basketball Illuminati. I'm Tom Haverstrow, and as always, I am joined by the five-star Illumin Army Generals, Amin Al-Hassan, and our producer, Anthony Mays. We got a great show. We brought it back. Sean Patrick Griffin, the author of Gaming the Game, the Tim Donaghy scandal expert. He's also a criminal justice professor. Mm-hmm. He wrote the book on Tim Donaghy scandal. He came on the show and people loved this episode. The rave reviews were just filling our inbox and our email address. Great interview we did a couple weeks ago with him, but this one's even better. Hear what Sean Patrick Griffin thought, his takes, his reaction to the Netflix documentary. We're going to talk to him for our Truth Tellers segment. But first... Listening to the agenda with Tom Haverstrow and Amin El Hassan. The big deal that we were waiting on, Donovan Mitchell has been traded and not to the Knicks. Wow. (laughs) Plot twist in the whole story. Donovan Mitchell was actually traded to the Cleveland Cavaliers. The CAA Knicks did not get the deal done. Leon Rose is sitting there answering to Stephen A. Smith. They lost him. They had Donovan Mitchell in their clutches, or so they make you believe. Frustrated by the talks with Donovan Mitchell, they put down the ultimatum, threw down the gauntlet and said, we're tired of this. You either give us your best shot or we're going to sign this deal with RJ Barrett. I swear to you. He signed the deal with R.J. Barrett and then Danny H. and the Utah Jazz say, okay, cool. Yep. Trade him to Cleveland. We made this analogy last week. When you make a big stand with your significant other and then your significant other is Danny Ainge, just waltzes away with your drugs all the way to Cleveland. <laughs> right, I mean? That's right, boys. And you know what, man? It's funny because... The package he got from Cleveland is actually quite favorable. I don't think people people keep saying, oh, the Knicks. I'm like, hold on for a second. They got Laurie Markinen. They got Colin Sexton right. at a deal that's almost 50% lower than what R.J. Barrett ended up getting. And they got three first-round picks and two pick swaps, which, as Tom noted on Twitter, a pick swap is basically an unprotected pick, right? It's just the question of, do I get it? AKA, is it better than mine or not? And it remains to be seen, obviously, if that's the case. But I thought Utah did a good job of getting an extraordinary amount of value out of Donovan Mitchell. 
But guys, as always, there's another angle to this. I've been kind of incommunicado off the internet over the weekend. Mm. So maybe I don't have the full scope of detail on this. Guys, the Jazz and the Knicks negotiated for a Donovan Mitchell deal. Do you guys know who the principal parties negotiating were? Has this come out? Gary Washburn has reported Mm -hmm. that it wasn't Leon Rose actually talking to Danny Ainge. In fact, nor was it Danny Ainge for that matter. They were not even... Talking Donovan Mitchell trade. They didn't even discuss this trade. Gary Washburn is reporting. Truth teller Gary Washburn. That Gerson Rosas, who is an advisor to the New York Knicks, to Leon Rose, used to be the president of basketball operations for the Minnesota Timberwolves, Mm -hmm. was discussing this with Justin Zanuck, who is the GM of the Utah Jazz, who is underneath Danny Ainge. So if you look at just like an org chart, Danny Ainge and Leon Rose are on the same level. And beneath them, you could say that Gerson Rosas and Justin Zanuck below them discussing this deal. This is an excellent point that I'd like to interject in. You say, what? And your mind is blown by this. It is not uncommon at all. Rather, it is very common in the NBA where you have this kind of dual leadership role where there's one guy who's the president of basketball ops and one guy's general manager. Now, if you're my age or around my age or our age group, you remember a time when the GM was the guy. This is the guy who's in charge of all the basketball decisions. But over the last decade or so, the introduction of the president of basketball ops, or as I like to call it, the chief basketball decision maker, has become more and more prevalent across the league. It's basically a guy who's worked in basketball for quite a while and says, I want to run a team, but I don't want to do all the work. I don't want to do all the phone calls and flying and seeing Marist versus Siena. I don't want to do all that. I want to see the sexy things. I want to see Real Madrid, Barcelona, for sure. (laughs) I want to see Duke, North Carolina. I want to go to the Combine. I want to do the fun stuff, right? When I ask people who's the GM of the Miami Heat, they'll probably say Pat Riley. They say Pat Riley, yes. Who's the GM of the Pelicans? You'd say David Griffin. But they're not. Or the flip side of it is when I ask people who the chief basketball decision maker of the Pistons is, they say Troy Weaver. And the reality is Troy isn't. Troy has to answer to Ed Stefanski, who just floats above him and doesn't have to deal with the day-to-day. So GM increasingly has become the title of the guy that does the day-to-day stuff, the talking, the negotiating, and all that. And meanwhile, the PBOP or whatever you want to call it, or, or as I like to call it, the chief basketball decision maker, is a guy who says, hmm, I like it, yes, or no, take it back. I want something different. Now, the reason why I took time to explain this to everybody is because I want to point out the incongruency of the situation. Danny Ainge is the president of basketball operations, the chief basketball decision maker, but he's not doing the actual legwork. His GM, Justin Zanuck, is doing that. And by the way, Justin Zanuck being that guy, there's a reason also beyond that in terms of negotiations because a former agent. This is what he did. He negotiated for years and years. And now obviously he's worked on the basketball side for a while now for the Bucks first and now with the Jazz. So my guy Jay-Z, he's been around. Like he's not like, oh, I'm just an agent. What is all this about? He knows the inner workings. But again, the negotiation, this is his strong suit. Time to shine, right? For the Knicks, their president of basketball ops is Leon Rose, who is an agent, a former agent. So Presumably, he'd be great at negotiating, but he doesn't do that. He delegates it, not to his GM, yeah, but to an advisor who they just hired. Scott Perry is the GM. Scott Perry is the GM. 
And by the way, this is not an assault on Gerson Rosas' pedigree or his ability. I'm just saying, you don't see the advisor typically lead a conversation or negotiation. The reason I believe they gave was because he has a familiarity with Zanuck. But that to me, I mean, if I'm Scott Perry, I definitely feel another level of marginalization happening here. But if I'm Leon Rose, buddy, this is what we hired you for. Part of it is for your connections. You know everybody, everybody likes you because you used to rep all the great players. But part of it is, man, you're the negotiator. You're the lawyer. You're the dude who went to school for this. You did this for a living for years and years and years. Now you hand it off? Not even as someone who's got benefits? <laughs> right? To an advisor? That's odd. That's very odd. Here's the report from Boston Globe's Gary Washburn. Main negotiator in the Knicks jazz talks on the New York side was Gerson Rosas, who was let go by the Timberwolves for his part. Rosas was hired as a consultant by the Knicks in February, but took control of the Mitchell talks because of his relationship with Jay-Z. So I don't even think that the Knicks are hurt by this non-deal. I actually think if they had to put these resources into the deal to get the deal done for Donovan Mitchell, it might have mortgaged their franchise going forward. But the optics are terrible here is that Leon Rose is brought in to get these sort of deals done because he can get the Donovan Mitchells of the world. He can get them. Then he falls short. To me, it's not about the optics even. It's a couple of things. One is what you just said. Leon Rose, you're the negotiator. You're supposed to be able to get things done and not have us pay as much as we want to for it. But the other part of it, the more important part, Tom, isn't that, ooh, you guys tried to get Donovan Mitchell and you failed. No, no. It's why did you try to get Donovan Mitchell to begin with? This was always going to be a damned if you do, damned if you don't exercise. Yeah. Because if you get him, you're talking about Donovan Mitchell, Julius Randle, and Jalen Brunson. That's just a bunch of dudes that want to go up and jack shots, man. Mm -hmm. That's not going to work. Basketball-wise, doesn't work no matter what you gave up to get Donovan Mitchell. Donovan Mitchell makes more sense on the Cavs, for sure. Way more sense. Because they got Evan Mobley and Jared Allen backing him up, and they got the ability to cover up for their defensive efficiency. Exactly. So basically, the Knicks engage in the worst kind of pursuit, the pursuit of someone that if you were successful— it was a bad fit for you. And if you're unsuccessful, everyone talks about what losers you are. You swung and you missed again. There was no win in this situation. So the Cavs here, Brian Winhurst did a great story on ESPN.com just detailing how they got to this point, getting Jared Allen, taking advantage of that situation with the Brooklyn Nets, getting an all-star 22 years old, not on a max deal, which after being an all-star, it's going to be very impossible to get Jared Allen nearly that kind of money. And then you go and you get Donovan Mitchell while keeping your all-star core intact. I'm going to give you the building blocks for how they got this done. Building block number one was getting in on the Jared Allen deal because they found a way to facilitate. Remember, that wasn't a Jared Allen deal. That was hardened to the Nets. Yep. Rockets and Nets. The deal's happening. Colby Altman shrewdly said, how can I inject myself into this so I can extract value? The Rockets didn't want Jared Allen, who was, I mean, I think we all saw it. This guy was going to be a force to be reckoned with on the defensive end. So they got him. So that's building block number one. Number two is paying Jared Allen significantly less than what he's worth. When he signed that deal, I remember saying, 
he's undervalued. That is an amazing deal for the Nets. If I were Jared Allen, I should be upset that I got lowballed on this. But at the time, the center market was really low, if you remember. Five-year, $100 million. I mean, he's getting paid $20 million in 26. Peanuts. 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 Right? And it's a flat rate. <laughs> it's going to be like the mid-level by then. There wasn't even <laughs> yeah. an escalation in that, right? Building block number three was drafting Evan Mobley and having the belief this is the part I give him full credit, and that goes to J.B. Bickerstaff, the idea that, yes, we're going to have two bigs starting. I didn't believe it would work, and it worked marvelously for them. Building block number four, and this one's really interesting because it wasn't something the Cavs did on purpose. The injury of Colin Sexton because they had an issue. They didn't know, are we Sexton or Garland? Are we Garland or Sexton? Sexton getting hurt allowed Garland to step up. And allowed them to say, we're going Garland. Give him his extension, made Sexton expendable, and as a result, now you can move him for Donovan Mitchell. Tremendous, tremendous work by Kobe Altman and his staff. It's an interesting story for the top of the East, whether the Cavs are going to be actually in the conversation for the Eastern Conference title. They didn't make the playoffs last year. But I think the underlying machinations of this deal is more interesting. The Leon Rose aspect, the R.J. Barrett aspect, the fake ultimatum before the deal. And then, of course, my favorite part, 2024, the Cavs still have their first round pick. Bronny James can be a NBA eligible draftee in 2024. And what position is wide open on their depth chart? Small forward. Keep your third eye open. The Cavs, Kobe Altman making moves. All right. It's time to tell some truths. It's time to bring back Sean Patrick Griffin of Gaming the Game and not of the upcoming documentary, as we'll discuss right here on the show. Stay tuned. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Remember the best vacation you've ever taken? Make your next one even better with Get Your Guide. With Get Your Guide, you can book over 100,000 unforgettable experiences in the U.S. and around the world. Want to see the Grand Canyon from a helicopter? They got you. Watching a wrestling match in Mexico City? No problem. Or how about a guided tour of Rome's ancient ruins? Wherever you're going, whatever you're into, book your next travel experience at getyourguide.com. You all think I'm licked. Well, I'm not licked. And I'm going to stay right here and fight for this lost cause, even if this room gets filled with lies like these. And the tailors and all their armies come marching into this place. Somebody will listen to me. There's no better way to overpower a trickle of doubt than with a flood of naked truth. But the complexity in the gray lie not in the truth. But what you do with the truth once you have it. What is true and right is true and right for all. You and I both know that that's just not the truth. You can't handle the truth! It's too messy. It keeps them up nights. I'm here because in the end, the truth is worth the risk. Speak a little truth and people lose their mind. I'm a grown man. You can tell me the truth. Why is it people who want the truth never believe it when they hear it? So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to do something really outrageous. 
I'm going to tell the truth. We brought you back here, Sean. You have written the book. I have it right here. I've got it all flagged and highlighted. Gaming the Game. Story behind the NBA betting scandal and the gambler who made it happen. Thanks for joining us again. If you haven't listened to that episode, go listen. Press pause right now. Do your homework and listen to that episode. And we introduce Sean Patrick Griffin to our Illuminati listeners. We kind of saw this coming, right? You said the producers reached out to you really early on in the process, and it was pretty clear to you that they had not read the definitive account of the Tim Donaghy scandal with primary sources, interviews with FBI agents, all of that. They just didn't read your book and they still called you. Then after you watched the documentary, did you feel any better about their ability to tell the truth about this story? No. If you remember, I said on your podcast, I was trying to be reasonable. Yeah. Maybe I'd be wrong. Maybe all my spider senses, my spidey sense was wrong, but it wasn't possible. But what I didn't know, if you had told me beforehand, keep in mind, I was only going by what I had experienced with the producers or what little I had heard from Batista based on what he had been interviewed about. If you had told me beforehand that John Laro, Donaghy's lawyer, and Warren Flagg, the FBI, former FBI agent, and now private investigator or whatever, were involved, I would have told you I needed all I needed to know without <laughs> ever seeing a thing. And I give you an analogy. If you're in my line of work, I mentioned on the last podcast, in organized crime literature, a lot of it is very sketchy. It's street rumors, legends, things like that. So there are a handful of people, literally, it's not hundreds, it's maybe a dozen or two. In organized crime history, if you're looking at books, people like me, literally, when I look at a book, I first look at the reference section. Hmm. I can tell you what a book is going to look like, either looking at the end notes, the source notes, or the references before I ever even buy the book. And that's what this show was. If you read Game in the Game, there's a chapter called Team Donaghy's Assault on Justice. Yeah. Well, what I didn't know, I could sense it, but I didn't know how bad it was going to be, was that the Netflix show is Team Donaghy's version debunked version, by the way, of the NBA betting scandal. That's why I said on Twitter, it's actually worse than I thought it was going to be. It's funny because I remember the conversation we had. I went back and listened to it. We asked you about what your impressions were based on them approaching you and your conversation with the producers prior to this project getting made. And you said something along the lines of the series is called Untold. But everything they're talking about is stuff that's already been told. I thought that's what we're going to get, stuff that we already know. But, you know, to a mass public, maybe they didn't know. And instead, what I got was things that even I, having not read your book in entirety, just excerpts and sections here and there, could automatically identify like, oh, that's that's the farthest thing from truth. Well, that's true. Well, look, as you guys know, the first however many minutes of the quote unquote documentary are on favoritism to players and things like that. You don't need access to Tim Donaghy or anything for that. That stuff's been around forever. But <laughs> even with regard to the NBA betting scandal, I'm not exaggerating. I'm not, this is not hyperbole. Quite literally, there's not a thing in that documentary that if you've been paying attention to the story, that was new. It was new in some regards. If people had not listened to the podcast that was done in 2020. The Whistleblower podcast, right? Yes. The last third of the documentary was heavily the material that you would have heard if you listened to the Whistleblower podcast. That, of course, had its own problems. 
But my point is, if you've been paying attention to the story, honest to goodness, there's not a thing in that documentary that was new. It really wasn't untold. I mean, the parts that were untold were the parts that shouldn't have been told because they weren't true. Even things like the favoritism (laughs) stuff, it's wholly irrelevant to the story. When you bring all those things together, I guess you could make a case for circumstantial evidence, but I just felt like there was a lot of information there that wasn't relevant. And then stuff that was really relevant also is not untold because you wrote a book about it. I found wholly confusing. I mean, that's one of my main issues with the documentary. Batista was interviewed for 13 hours. Think about that for a second. Mm. And yet we get what we saw. Well... I mean, Sean, to be fair, our last episode was 15 hours, and I just got real creative. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, listen, with me as an interview guest, that's possible. (laughs) I give people like you a tough job trying to edit these things. I'm so long-winded. But my whole issue with this is I stupidly thought this was going to be a documentary about the NBA betting scandal. What it was was a really sharp looking, you have to give them credit, the production value is impressive. It was a sharp looking version of Donaghy's book. Yes. It's Donaghy's story. And what they did was really shrewd, by the way. And again, this is where I have a different take on this just because I'm an academic. I don't like these things because fine, they're going to do something from a perspective, but A, there's objective data. B, there's evidence, evidence that debunks what they put out there. But beyond that, they literally had access to the people and to the data to get it right. And they consciously chose to put that out there. That's what people should be agitated about. Okay, so let's get into the actual moments of this documentary that I have flagged here as things I want to ask you about. The principal one, the number one thing is the meeting at the Marriott. Mm -hmm. You have chronicled The meeting at the Marriott, it is an absolutely pivotal moment in this entire scandal. And the producer of the documentary asks Tommy Martino, who is the co-conspirator, boys with Tim Donaghy, they go back since day one, off camera, subtitled and everything, why are your stories about what happened at the Marriott so different? Tommy Martino starts stammering and then goes, wait, can we cut for a sec? What happened there? (laughs) Here's the background that I know. Tenderfoot TV did a podcast talking to Tim Donnie and Tommy Martino a couple years ago. And in that podcast, Whistleblower Podcast, the journalist is driving Tommy Martino, asking him about Tim Donaghy and the scandal. And Tommy Martino confesses something. He makes an admission in the car and says, I actually have been lying about that meeting. Tom, just to be clear, what he says is... Donaghy asked him to back him up on his story. And so in order to back him up in his story, he had to say that I was never there when the threat was made. I never heard threats, but I was never there when those two were alone. That wasn't addressed here on the documentary, right? Like as far as I could tell, they just skipped over that whole part. And when Tommy Martina wants to go off the record, they just kind of leave that cliffhanger. So talk to me about that moment, watching it, you chronicling that whole Marriott meeting and then seeing how the documentary presented it. Well, don't forget, I'm watching this like you. So when I saw that moment, I'm a big boy. I can imagine why a producer or a director would love that moment where he says, I don't want to talk on screen. But I'm stupidly assuming they're going to come back to that and explain why he wanted to be off air, what was actually done and said, and the fact that he finally admitted in 2020, what everyone who knew the story knew, that you know he had been lying for the last decade. And they never come back to it. 
are they doing that just because they want this like mystery out there for clicks and views and ratings? I don't know. But again, I'm assuming they really were going to tell the story. And people who watch this think that with all this money and this high-end production, we're 10 years after this, by the way. It's not like we're in 2007 and there's this fog about what happened. Yeah, We know what happened. And yet we're getting this. And they never return to that. So the viewer knows nothing about what you just said, by the way. They don't know that Martino admitted to that. And by the way, that ridiculous story that Donaghy tells on that documentary where he says the threats were made, don't forget, he says the threats were made in the Marriott at the table. Martino goes to the bathroom. I'm begging people, go to my Twitter feed, SPG author, and you'll see clips from Donaghy in 2009 where he says over and over dozens of times on radio and TV that the mob, two Gambino crime family members, picked him up and took him for a ride. And that's when the threats were made. Wait, what? Who are the Gambino mobsters? His best friend, Tommy Martino, and Martino's good friend, Jimmy Batista. But that's my point. His story has changed so many times, just like Martino's, and no one is paying attention to this. The craziest thing to me was there used to be the saying, I don't know if it still exists, all you need is a last name that ends in a vowel in order to be implicated in the mob. I'm watching this and knowing what I know from what I've read of your work from our conversation, I know that neither of these guys are mob guys. No. And the documentary makes it seem like Batista was a fringe mob guy. Yeah. Even that is a very, very deep stretch of the truth. No, no, listen, that's ridiculous. And here's the thing. I could do an hour on this alone. This is why I get so upset about this. The framing is driving me crazy with these sorts of things. Scala is in that documentary and he says something like, Oh, Batista wants to deny that people in organized crime made money or profited. Batista never denied that. I wrote extensively about that in Gaming the Game. That's not the issue. Yeah, of course, if you're handling that kind of volume, there are all sorts of people, one degree, two degrees removed from organized crime who are betting. The public gets this wrong all the time, and I explain this in Gaming the Game too. There's a great line in the book where Batista, and I think the quote is, people think that we'd be afraid of organized crime. In pro-gambling, We're the whales and they're the fish. And his argument is we're the ones running the market. We can take money out of their pockets. They can't take money out of our pockets. That's one of the nuances that is never explained in something like this. But with regard to that meeting that's talked about in the show, I describe in Gaming the Game, Batista is moving money and gambling with a big time gambler in New York City, who, by the way, is Jewish. For the sake of this conversation, the Jewish mob, they got it. <laughs> exactly. Well, he's the one who was gambling and moving money for the Gambino crime family. That's true. But that has nothing to do with Martino or Batista being mobsters and threatening Donaghy. Or and that's what I'm saying. Donaghy has so shrewdly played this for 10 years. And the media doesn't get that because it makes him look better. Yes. It makes him look better. And also, as I said, you have last names that end in vowels. No one's going to question. Jimmy Batista, who's named Baba? Baba. Yeah, of course he's Baba. A, of course he's a mobster. Hey, Tom, the whole Baba black sheep, the public needs to know this. I read about this in Game of the Game, too. Yeah, it's great. He doesn't get that name from like being a tough street guy or a corner guy or whatever. His family gave him that nickname because he was the black sheep of the family. It was an inside joke in his family. He totally embraced it and was fine with it. But the public thinks, oh my gosh, that's because he was in this underworld. Yeah. That happened when he was a kid. It's like Carmine the Knife Fratelli. Like they're yeah, thinking exactly. it's that kind yeah, of yeah. nickname. <laughs> the other thing that bothered me about the documentary is they've got Phil Scala there. I don't know how many hours they interviewed him. They could have asked him, well, hey, obviously you guys picked up on this sort of by chance. Well, 
What about Batista? They could have asked him all these details. Why wasn't Batista charged with extortion? They're putting Donaghy on air saying he was extorted. Okay, well, you've got the FBI supervisor on the show. Well, why wasn't he charged with extortion? According to Donaghy, Martino extorted him too. Why wasn't he charged with extortion? If they're threatening him and his family, like, oh, if you don't come over with me, there's someone who might make a trip down to Florida and meet your wife and kids. (laughs) That's a threat. That's extortion. That should be a federal crime here. That should be something that Phil's team. And by the way, can you tell the people, Phil Scala, the guy who's on the documentary and who wrote the forward on Tim Donaghy's book, (laughs) which for reasons have not been explained, right? Right. Why Phil Scala wrote the forward for the book. He was housing the unit. He actually wasn't one of the agents who were working the case actively boots on the ground every day. Those two agents are not retired from the FBI and therefore can't talk. You you are good at this. That's the issue. Yes. Scal's the only one who can talk and he's the guy who's managing this thing, but he's not actually doing the dirty work, right? That's exactly right. The agents were Paul Harris. He was the case agent, which in layman's turn is the lead, lead agent and Jerry Conrad. And they haven't retired yet. And no one even knows their names. No one knows the names of the U.S. attorneys who worked the case. There are only two of those. That's the thing. When you're talking about the NBA betting scandal, you're literally talking about five people, including Phil Scala, two assistant U.S. attorneys and two FBI agents. And you haven't heard from any of those other than in Game of the Game, of course. I want to make another point to Tom's point about the fact, well, they could have been charged with extortion. Don't forget, in Donaghy's plea agreement, the feds write he was never anything more than a willing participant. That's a quote. And the judge, when she sentenced Donaghy, said he was more culpable than his co-conspirators. And yet the documentary mentions none of this. In fact, the producer off camera, when talking about this moment, he says verbatim, if he had not made that threat. Yes, yes. As if it is fact. And he sets Donaghy up for the, oh, well, of course I wouldn't have done this. Yes, Tom, you're so good at this. And that's what I'm saying. I'm not a Batista apologist. I'm trying to get the facts correct. This is all on the public record. You don't need access to Sean Patrick Griffin's files or gaming the game. This is public record. It's driving me nuts. This entire thing was framed from Tim Donaghy's point of view, and they ran with it. That's another example where it was just teed up. And what the public doesn't know is not only was Donaghy not upset when the scandal ended, he complained. When Batista goes into drug rehab on March 18, 2007, He told the media for a decade, oh, I was so relieved because the mob had finally released me. (laughs) Yeah, they'd be off my back. Yeah, well, the truth was it switched from Jimmy Batista to Pete Ruggieri, another professional gambler. Ruggieri had it for like a handful of games. He shuts the scheme down, not the FBI, not the NBA, and certainly not, as he says, Tim Donaghy. The pro gambler, Pete Ruggieri, shuts the scheme down because by then too many people are copying the bets in the underworld market. I don't mean underworld like mobsters. I'm talking about the professional gambling market because everyone knew he was fixing games. And Ruggieri said, we can't control this any longer. And then when that happens, Martino reports back to Donaghy, hey, Pete's shutting the scheme down. And Donaghy complains about one more game. He wants one more game. The documentary people knew all of this and chose not to put it on air. I don't think people understand how much the media is manipulating the story. Before you answer this question, Sean, because I know you're going to have a fire answer, I want to ask Maze and Tom. Based on what we know, which is a fraction of what Sean knows, what was the most glaring omission you noticed when watching the documentary? For me, it was what Sean told us last time. The success rate on Donaghy picks where Donaghy ref was 37 and 10, right? The success rate on games where he wasn't refing 
was so bad they said never mind don't give us any more of your insight picks just give us your games and your picks for those games tom and Maze, if i present that to you as the most glaring omission do you have something that can match it and then after you guys have answered i want sean to see i want to see if sean has something that can match or even overtake that <laughs> they completely didn't mention that tim donaghy's uncle billy oaks was an nba referee they were talking about like his life as a, a referee and right. the nepotism in the referee ranks and they just glossed over the fact that his uncle was an nba referee they left a couple things out but the one that you mentioned it hadn't even hit me because i just assumed that it was talked about on the documentary but the fact that his non donaghy game bets were losers almost every time they just left that out of the document. For me, I think it's what Sean told us about last time, which is the animals, Batista's crew. Mm-hmm. We get a couple references by Batista to the animals, and they do absolutely no exposition about who that is, yeah. what they did, all the things Sean told us about, how they presented themselves, and how they were just kind of regular schmoes that were making million-dollar bets. There was absolutely no insight into that, and it was weird out of context because if you just hear the animals, I guess you could think that that's maybe the mob. Sean, can you top any of that with an omission? You feel like, oh, my God, I can't believe they left that out. Well, it's related to one of your things, which is, don't forget, it starts out with the quote-unquote inside information angle, which has obviously always been his argument. You can debunk that. With a blizzard of data, whether it's betting lines, betting records, the cooperating government informers, who, again, they know about this. They know based on what I told them and what I gave them. They know who the cooperators are. They had access to all that information. And by the way, when Martino talked to them, he's one of the people who said that they were only betting on Donaghy games because of the few losses they took. He told the FBI that. So they could have picked apart that whole thing. And by the way, I mean, last time when I was on, you love the code. Yeah. Well, here you've got Donaghy and Martino on the documentary joking about the code. But no one is realizing, wait, they're actually admitting that they're only talking about Donaghy games. (laughs) There's another part of the documentary where they do the same thing, where they have Martino on there saying, oh, yeah, after every game, Donaghy would call me and say, good boy. (laughs) Yeah, good boy. (laughs) Yes. It's all because they knew what game it was. In your book, Batista says... Donnie would always call him right before a game and say, what's the number? What's the number? He needed to know what to beat, yeah. He doesn't need to know the number on anyone else's games. He just needs to know the number on his games. So the thing that drives me nuts watching this documentary is they talk about certain games. And you're not an NBA analyst. You don't have the same sort of experience watching these games as Amin, Maze, and I do, where we can say, huh, I wonder what the tape actually says. And so they bring up that Knicks Heat game, okay? Knicks Heat. February 26, 2007. Here's what Tim Donaghy says. He pushes Derek Stafford under the bus. (laughs) (laughs) It's Derek Stafford. Like, what? I was refereeing with Stafford. This is Derek Stafford, longtime NBA referee. He was buddies with Isaiah Thomas. This is what Tim Donaghy is saying. I knew Stafford didn't have a liking for Pat Riley, even a little bit. And I knew any chance he got, he'd stick it to him because he was that type of referee. Okay. You can go back and watch the tape and see... All the times that Derek Stafford stuck it to Pat Riley. And Tom actually went back and watched the tape, ladies and gentlemen. He's not (laughs) hypothetically saying, go back and watch the tape. This is someone who actually went back and watched the tape (laughs) and counted. And Tom, what did you find? Donnie was way, way more biased against Pat Riley than the Knicks. It was unbelievable. 18 calls Tim Donnie made in this game. I watched the game, just charted. 
took me maybe an hour, two hours to watch all these plays. 14 favored New York that eventually covered by a lot. New York, 14 calls. Miami, four calls. So Tim Donaghy is claiming Derek Stafford is in the tank for Isaiah Thomas and the Knicks, and he hates Pat Riley. But Tim Donahue was way more biased. If you look at the ledger, making a lot of calls for the Knicks than the Miami Heat. You look at Derek Stafford. He made 16 calls, nine for the Knicks, seven for the Miami Heat. <laughs> Almost even. Derek Stafford, who Tim Donahue is saying on the documentary that he was going to stick it to Pat Riley any chance he got, was so in the tank for the Knicks that it was basically even the calls that he made. In fact, there's a, an amazing moment where Tim Donahue's on the floor. They're running back on defense. Pat Riley is so mad at a call. Shaq goes up for a layup, doesn't get the call, thought he was fouled. And on the call, Mike Breen is yelling, wow, Pat Riley is screaming at the refs. And so Derek Stafford tees him up. If you're Tim Donnie watching that moment, you know, I have this play where Derek Stafford is teeing up Pat Riley. That's proof. That's proof that he hates Pat Riley, right? But a couple plays later, Derek Stafford Calls it technical on the Knicks. On the Knicks. Like two plays later and negates that whole thing. Well, not only that, Tom, correct me if I'm wrong. The no call wasn't Stafford's no call. It was Donaghy's no call. Yes. So he tees up Pat Riley for overreacting to a no call that Donaghy is responsible for or responsible for not calling it. So Stafford had Donaghy's back. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. And then years later, (laughs) he shoved him under the bus. There's another thing watching the tape. One of the violations that he actually called for the Heat actually benefited the Knicks. Even though he called it against the Knicks, it benefited the Knicks. And I'll show you why. Shaq is going up for a layup and he makes it. And as he's going up for the layup, he gets fouled. Tim Donaghy calls the foul. And everyone's like, oh, that's an and one. Tim Donnie's saying, no, on the floor, not an and one on the floor. That's a foul. That shot doesn't count. And everyone's like, what? Like, that was obviously continuation and he laid it in. So Tim Donnie is calling a foul against the Knicks, but it benefits the Knicks because it wipes away a potential three-point play. And instead, it counts as zero. So the nuances of what Tim Donnie would do to sway the line and benefit whoever he is picking, this is all a long way to say, why didn't they have an analyst or a journalist (laughs) or someone who had written a book to say, hey, yeah, we watched the film and actually it's 14 to four. Tim Donnie was way more biased towards the Knicks than Derek Stafford was. Well, Tom, here's the other issue. You just said it took you maybe an hour or so. With no research budget and no assistance. This was a very big budget documentary that's been in the works for a long time. I have my own hangups, as you've heard, but there's another example. That has not stopped with this story. You know, last podcast, you nicely referenced Henry Abbott's work. There have been a bunch of people, not dozens, but a handful of us who've taken the time to do this. We're either the unluckiest people on the planet. Or he says a lot of things that are factually demonstrably false. Why not have a Henry Abbott on this program being like, okay, we covered this on ESPN and it was very obvious X, Y, and Z. They didn't have a single third party to come in here and direct the audience on what's BS. Because the idea that the three co-conspirators have conflicting stories could have been explained by a third party being like, yeah, this is what happened. But they didn't call you to sit down for an interview. They called you just for background info, apparently. That's actually one of my main issues with the documentary. 
don't forget, I'm proud of Game in the Game because it's not Batista's story. If there are diverging opinions or versions of events on, for instance, like the profits, they don't agree on how much money Tim Donaghy got paid. Donaghy says that he got paid 30 to 40. Martino says he paid him between 115,000 and 120,000. And Batista says that he paid him between 201 and 209,000. Well, I don't take an argument on that. I present that in the book. There are a bunch of examples like that where you just tell the audience there are divergent opinions or recollections of what happened and let the public know. And they don't do that at all. They literally take Jim Donaghy's word as gospel and then see what I think is more dastardly. I think what they did is awful. They get these other interview subjects and selectively edit their answers to craft their narrative. So it looks as one big compelling package. And that is outrageous. I would have loved to have sat in those interviews for, you know, however many hours it was for each person. Because I've done that before. I've been interviewed for documentaries many times, and I'm long-winded, and I can understand how they need a 30-second clip, and I'm giving them two minutes. I get that. But you can do that without changing history and manipulating history, and that's what they did here. So, Sean, we've talked a lot about this, just about the subjectivity of the documentary. You called it the Donaghy defense documentary. Yeah. And I want to know, clearly his involvement was a major part of it. Do you think that his interview was contingent upon the narrative being framed around his story? Do you think he would have participated if they had been more objective? That's a great question. If I didn't have background information, I would have said, I think so. I actually don't think that happened. He was nervous as heck about what this finished project was going to be. So much so that he visited Tommy Martino, flew up from Florida to visit Tommy Martino, what he had told them and what he thought or whatever. And Donaghy texted Batista asking him to come over so they could all go over what they told Netflix. So I think he was very nervous. Wait, how do you know that? Batista told me. (laughs) I know he did. It's not a matter of telling. And you're laughing because it is laughable, right? Here, for a decade, we've been told that Jimmy Batista and before him, Batista and Martino were Gambino crime family members who were threatening Donaghy's family. Yeah. Never mind the silly thing that just happened with Netflix, where Donaghy is at Martino's house and texting Batista saying, hey, I'm at Tommy's, come on over. Two years ago, when they're promoting Martino's film, Donaghy contacts Batista, text messages and say, hey, and I won't tell you the dollar figures, we can give you X number of dollars if you help us promote this film. This is the guy who is on TV, radio for 10 years saying that this is a mobster threatening his life and kids. It's so ridiculous. And you don't need my access to this ridiculous anecdote. But anyway, so Mays, Donaghy, I think, was correctly fearful, not because of anything he said, but because he knew that they had spoken to me and they talked to Batista. As it turns out, he had nothing to worry about. So in your book, I'm opening it up to 226 here. Of course. (laughs) This is on what characters chapter? Oh, yes. 226. One of my favorite pages. (laughs) For those following at home, this is you writing here. The assault on Donaghy's character and credibility was likely to go all the way back to high school when Donaghy admitted getting into Villanova University in part by having someone take his SAT exam for him. Donaghy's SAT scam was a hot topic among the Delco crowd from that era, and Tommy Martino had discussed his knowledge of the situation with the FBI, including the name of the person Donaghy supposedly paid to take the test in Donaghy's stead after performing poorly on the exam himself. Martino added that it was his understanding that Donaghy also cheated on tests while at Villanova. 
Okay. I didn't know that before I read your book that Donnie apparently paid someone to take the SAT form. But all of these things could have been presented as like a rehashing of his credibility and like the lies that he's told. Maybe you can't believe everything he says on this documentary, but they didn't touch his credibility. They tried at the end with the whole... Did you make more money than you said you made? Yes. That was their way of saying, see, we pointed out that he's an untrustworthy liar, but they literally waited an hour and 17 minutes to drop that. But even that is sort of trivial. Okay, what a surprise. He wants to hide income either from his ex-wife or from the IRS. Big deal. They spend an hour on all the other stuff that you can literally debunk. But to Tom's point, I don't know why everyone, and you know, I'll defend the documentary, I'm putting air quotes around defend, because everyone's been doing this. They're treating him like they're interviewing Amin, or they're interviewing Tom. He's a guy who's convicted of a felony, and the felony is fraud, not to mention all the other stuff, whether it's his SAT things or whatever. And by the way, Tom, I was chuckling when you're reading from one of my favorite pages, of course. If you go through that, that also gets into all the stuff that Tommy Martino told the FBI about what they were doing during the scandal. When you look at this documentary on Netflix, there are a handful of ways, if you really know the story, where you go, oh my gosh, I get it. I know what they're doing. They're framing this in Donaghy's voice, but making it look like it's the story. And my examples, I told you earlier about the prophets. Well, there's the other one about cranberries, yeah. where they make a big deal. They quote Tim Donaghy saying, yeah, well, we all had cranberries. We weren't supposed to talk to anybody. Well, we know that he didn't follow that, meaning Batista didn't follow that. Well, what they don't tell the public is... They all, meaning Batista, Donaghy, and Martino, all told people about the picks after the deal was made in December. Batista told the professional gambler in New York. Donaghy starts betting again with Jack and Cannon, who you know from the start of this back in November. And then Martino starts sharing the picks with a friend of his who's at a, a sports book in Costa Rica. Hmm. That's why the betting lines are flying all over the place. I'm not defending Batista. I'm saying if you're going to put that out there, like, oh, well, here, this is what the problem was, that one of us was violating the code of secrecy. Well, that's just not true. When Martino was talking to the FBI about all this sort of stuff, he was also talking about the drugs he was getting Donaghy and the prostitutes he was getting Donaghy. That's not relevant to the story. But the way that the documentary was framed, you would think, oh my goodness, like Batista is this, this pill popper or whatever, and the rest of And Martino says, yeah, it was sort of the problem with Jimmy's drug use. Well, are they unaware that he actually told the FBI he was getting drugs for Donaghy? Yeah. They literally have Phil Skella there. And of course, as I keep saying, they have the documents. So there's this other thing in the book that you actually compare the betting line data, percentage of NBA games with big line movements to corroborate the idea that Donnie was fixing games, or at least he was betting big on games that he was officiating and not betting big on inside information that were losers. My question here is, what else could the documentary have done to just get down into the facts about whether he bet on these games and fix them or whether he was just betting and winning games on other people's games? There's the fact about Chuck versus Johnny, mm-hmm. home and away. You only know that if it's only one game that they're talking about, not the entire slate of games. But was there another way that they could demonstrably show that evidence was everywhere that he was fixing games? I would have done that a couple of ways. First of all, I would have spent a lot of time with Phil Scala. Phil Scala was very open to me when I interviewed him back in whatever it was, 08, something like that, on the limitations of the FBI's investigation. See, that's the problem, too. USA Today did a review of the documentary, and they did what a lot of people in the media do. They say, oh, the FBI concluded Donaghy didn't fix games. That never happened. That literally never happened. 
So what did happen? Like, what is the conclusion, quote unquote, that the FBI came away with? They simply said we had a handful of agents who looked at a handful of games and they didn't see anything outrageous to suggest games were being manipulated. But Tom, think about this. Tim Donaghy told the FBI he didn't know what games he bet. Stop right there. So if you're the FBI and you don't know what games to look at, you also then don't know what the betting line propositions are and you don't know what side he took. So what are you looking at? There's no research to be done. First of all, why would FBI agents, no offense to FBI agents, but what would they know looking at game tape? It's not their fault, but it's not what they do. <laughs> I know. I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. And then Scala says, well, of course, we were looking for malicious fouls. Well, as you and Amin and Mays know, that's not what was being done. So if they don't know the, the games, they don't know the bets, and they don't know how the hustle was being done, they don't know what they're looking for. So what the FBI said in court filings, and I'll give Scala credit for this, he said this publicly, they were very reserved in what they said. They simply said, we didn't see evidence of malicious or ridiculous calls. Egregious. Yeah. And that's a fair point. You could get dozens of people to do that and come to the same conclusion, but they're not saying they concluded he didn't fix games. And importantly, Scala pushes back against that, and he sort of does in the documentary where he says, well, obviously, if you've got financial interest in a game, it's impossible for you not to at least subconsciously have that impact your bets. Oh, Tom, just so you know, the documentary could have gotten into this too. The NBA, three years ago, 2019, they put out a statement in response to ESPN, the magazine's article about this story. Because ESPN, the magazine said, well, the NBA concluded Donaghy didn't fix games. The NBA, in their official statement, says, we never concluded Tim Donaghy didn't fix games. And what the public may not know is that David Stern was deposed for one of the hearings, either the Supreme Court case or one of the congressional hearings when all the legalization of sports gambling was taking place. Right, right. And he was asked under oath about that. And he said the same thing. Yeah, we never concluded it in fixed games. <laughs> I know your audience must think, man, Griffin gets really wound up about this. <laughs> it's because this stuff, I'm not in the engineering department at the Citadel, right? Those guys are walking geniuses. I'm a criminal justice professor. I'm proud of my work, but it's just legwork. You can do this. And my goodness, they are either lazy, incompetent, biased, or some combination, because you can do this. I really like that, Sean. I liked how you demeaned yourself, but then used that as a relation to the people that made the documentary. And if you're not a genius because the engineers are, where are they on the scale? <laughs> lazy or biased, Maze, that's the answer. Oh, okay. Batista says a lot of pretty strong statements about David Stern and the NBA in this film. Yes. And he is alluding to a cover up mm -hmm. that David Stern controls everything, that MF or whatever he wanted to call him. Knowing Batista as well as you do, what is Batista actually alleging? Because I don't think he's saying that other referees were fixing games because he would have known that, right? If Scott Foster was fixing games, he would have been betting those games and making a gajillion dollars, but those were losers. So what exactly, and the documentary didn't really dig into this, when he says there was a cover up from the beginning, what is he alleging when he says that? Your audience is going to think I'm kissing your rear end. That's my problem with the documentary, too. They should be asking that question also. And I think they didn't want those answers. I would have done that with Scala a bunch of times, too. I would have had a bunch of follow-ups to all these things. What exactly are you saying? What are you alleging? And in Batista's case, if you read Game in the Game, there's actually a section about Scott Foster. Batista has had these beliefs literally going back to 2007 and 2008. But covering up an investigation into Foster is different 
than covering up something that Foster was doing. If Batista is upset that the FBI or the NBA didn't do a thorough vetting of Foster, that's fine. But that's not what people are thinking when they see that documentary. I'm not making any allegations about Scott Foster, and I'm not defending Scott Foster. I'm only saying I've had copies of those phone logs, too. And obviously, Foster says there's a chance that Donaghy was calling him and greasing him for information, and he didn't realize it. But those were totally innocent calls. Well, that's possible. There's a chance that Scott Foster was copying the bets on games Donaghy officiated. That's where Batista starts getting animated because we still don't know. We're now in September of 2022. Don't forget, the FBI and the NBA both researched this scandal thinking through Tim Donaghy's perspective. They bought his BS. It's not occurring to them that he's actually fixing games and that other people might benefit from copying the bets. So we don't know if that question was ever asked of Scott Foster. That blows my mind. I never thought about that, that the reason why the calls, even the reason that had he worn a wire, all it would have revealed is that they were all also betting on Donahue's games. They, they all knew that he was in on it, and they were like, all right, well, I'm not doing anything wrong other than profiting off of this thing that he's going to do any. Wow. Oh my! God, I got to take a walk. <laughs> what the hell? Did Scott Foster have a cousin that lived out of state? Exactly, or in Costa Rica? How's cousin Jason do? Good. Okay. All right. Good to talk to you. See you later, Scott. But the point is, when you ask the question, Tom, Batista's upset that that was never even vetted. And to his point, we don't know because, to my knowledge, that's never been considered. It's certainly not in the Pedowitz report. You know, the NBA study of the scandal. And the FBI has never spoken about this. So we don't know. The Pedowitz report did have like eight pages allocated to Scott Foster and the phone calls saying like, we looked at his phone calls and this is X amount of phone calls that he made to Tim Donnie. But the, he also made similar phone calls to other referees, Mark Wunderlich and, and Matt Bolin. And they were also really short calls. And once Tim Donnie was out of the picture, the pattern continued. It wasn't like what you think it is. Batista's upset because... He wants to know, I think in Game of the Game, he talks about like, why didn't the NBA show us the call log when Tim Donaghy called Scott Foster? Who did Scott Foster talk to right after that? Yes, exactly. Yes. If Batista is right, Tim Donaghy is calling Scott Foster with a pick and then Scott Foster might have called his bookie or someone like that. Right. Yes. When he gets all fired up on the documentary, he's saying that the NBA didn't properly vet the Scott Foster angle. And also there was a pretty strong move by Batista and them. Maze and I were talking about before, like they were pushing to get the NBA's referees on the stand, right? Yes. His lawyer, Batista's lawyer, wanted Tim Donaghy, that case, to go to trial. We were talking about how Batista definitely showed his gambling chops by <laughs> continuing to raise the ante and push it towards trial. And that he ended up winning the bet or bluffing it, I suppose, because they lowered his sentencing. That was presented in a documentary in a sinister light. I forget the quote, but Donaghy says something like, well, the NBA was trying to cover this up and that's why Batista got a sweetheart deal. That's not what happened. It's very complicated for a podcast, but the short version is the FBI office in Brooklyn hated coming down to the suburbs of Philly. Don't forget, these are organized crime guys. Well, they're now dealing with a white-collar gambling case in the suburbs of Philly, and they're having to travel down all the time. <laughs> and once Donaghy agreed to plead guilty and Martino pleaded guilty, there's no story. And the other thing, too, is by then they had concluded that there was no way that they could figure out if games were fixed. And they wanted to get back to their real job, which was fighting mobsters. And so they just thought, fine. And there was a second issue, which was the issue of venue. 
Batista's lawyer, Jack McMahon, had figured out there was no reason that case was being tried in New York City. He said, why am I traveling up to New York? Mm. You're arguing that all the phone calls and all the things my client did happen in Philly. So he called their bluff. Oh, my God. And they said, OK, fine. We don't want to go down there and we'll give him just gambling. And as you heard on the documentary, but he goes, well, I'm a gambler. That's no problem. <laughs> this just reminds me of when Larry David and Jason Alexander arguing about whose office is going to hold the meeting and curb your enthusiasm. <laughs> Have a meeting to hold the meeting, to decide on the meeting. Everything is framed in a pro Donaghy evidence free fashion. What about the TV deal? Yeah, yeah. That David Stern found out about the scandal, didn't reveal it to the TV networks, and then signed a gajillion dollar TV network deal. That to you is not evidence that he was trying to squeeze this TV deal and he had every incentive to sign that deal before this scandal broke out, that this was evidence that David Stern is a mob boss, essentially. Well, I think I was the first non-FBI, non-US attorney person to hear that story. When I interviewed Scala for Game in the Game back in 07 or 08, he told me that then. Untold. <laughs> yeah, yes, yeah that, actually, that is untold, yeah. And I, of course, what evidence is there of that? You know, he likes connecting dots and coming up with conspiracy theories. And there is none. As far as that goes, Scala is no different than your neighbor, your drinking buddy at the pub. Like, okay, fine. You can say that the deal was cut right around the time that this was happening, whatever. But look, you and your audience know those deals are going on for months. The idea that that massive deal was cut out of nowhere to put this to bed, there's a difference between making good business decisions and a scandal. And there's nothing stopping, especially in 2022. People at those broadcast networks were upset and thought they got hustled. They could have gotten the word out there anonymously and let people know they think they got duped, that they wouldn't have cut the deal but for David Stern rushing it before this shit show was going to happen. Yeah, that's a great quote that they presented in the documentary that the NBA states that the TV networks had no problem with how we negotiated that deal. And it's like, why did you just go to the TV networks? It has to be about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Last thing, and we'll let you go here, Sean. This documentary comes out. You think it's as bad or maybe worse than you had predicted, the way that the truth is not presented accurately in this documentary, that it's very pro-team Donahue. But if you go and do a search about this documentary on Twitter and on social media, people are loving it. Yeah, I know. How does that make you feel? It's disheartening. And I'm going to say something corny on your podcast here, because it's a hoops podcast. My problem with this is, I think this is happening a lot in stories way bigger than an NBA betting scandal. Because I've done this now so many times, the public needs to understand that it is just so challenging figuring out what to believe because something like this looks real. They've got the actual characters. They've got the supervisor of the unit that did the investigation. And it's so beautifully done. So my goodness, it's compelling as hell. So it's not surprising to me at all. And the other thing too is though, Tom, if you do this, and unfortunately, while you're spending hours looking at game tape, I'm spending hours looking at reactions to this on the internet. You see the same thing that I've seen for a decade. I knew it. I knew it. Everything about referee bias, all that sort of stuff. It's all the confirmation bias that's been going on forever. Mm. The fact that he chose certain games, people go, I knew it. And it's just like his book. He chose certain series in the playoffs. He talked about the Kings-Lakers game that he did not officiate. Yeah, It's just a game that is already a lightning rod. And if you say, oh yeah, just watch that game. He never says who manipulated he just kind of throws it out there. The other thing people do, they say Tim Donaghy admitted. 
He's not admitting anything. He's claiming. He's alleging. What are you admitting? He's not admitting anything. Yeah. You think that epic thread I put up there a week ago, I'm putting up another one sometime today or tomorrow because I want your public to see how the media has treated this over 10 years. Now that more and more people are learning the truth and how they've been manipulated. Because the media has been a huge part of this. Yeah, fine. He's a convicted felon who tells tales. Okay, great. But people keep giving them platforms. That's, to me, the issue. Who cares about Donahue? It's unreal that people just giving him platforms to say whatever he likes without any fact-checking or whatever. In this case, I think it's worse because, like I say, they literally had access to everything and ignored it. It's different. In 2007, okay, fine, we didn't know a lot. Well, we know a lot now. And they were offered a lot and had access to all of it and chose to ignore it for their own narrative. Sean just put his finger on exactly what we do here at this podcast. We break the code. We ask the questions. Open your third eye. Open your second eye, man. Do your own research, folks. Read Sean's book, Gaming the Game. Don't fall for the conventional wisdom. Question everything. And that's not what people are doing when they watch this documentary. They accept everything. They accept the narrative. And we, goddammit, are not willing to be sheep. Sean Patrick Griffin, not sheep Patrick Griffin. Thank you for joining us on the show. Before we get into the, the nitty gritty, I do want to ask you, if, I mean, I'm assuming you watch a show called We Own the City on HBO. Oh, I haven't seen that. Oh, um, man. It's about policing in Baltimore. Oh, sexy corruption. Sexy yeah. corruption, but also the mangling of objectives based on what priorities are. Right, right, right. I think you get a kick out of it. It's done by the guy that created The Wire. Oh, it's funny. I was going to ask that because whatever I watch is based on things like this. And so years ago, I mean, this is like 10 years ago, students who were in my organized crime class said, have you seen The Wire? You heard of this wire? And I hadn't. So I bought the box DVD set or whatever. And that sucker is incredible. Yes. That is really well done. We Own This City is very similar. Obviously, it's still Baltimore. But the difference is, is that while The Wire is kind of adapted truth, this is all based on straight up facts. Okay. A real, real policeman named Wayne Jenkins and all that. This documentary was also based on facts, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, theoretically, yes. Well done, Tom. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. 
$5,000. That's the average amount of money people in the U.S. are now spending on gas in a year. Five grand. That's crazy. If you drive, you have to download Upside, the free app that gives you cash back every time you get gas. That's right. You can earn real cash back with Upside just by buying the gas you're already buying. You can literally start earning cash back today. I use Upside every time I fill up, and I've already made around two, $300. You're putting gas in your car anyway. Why not get real cash back? If you like free money, download Upside. I'm saving the cash I earn from using Upside to help pay for a vacation later this year. Download the free Upside app now to earn cash back every time you buy gas. Use promo code SAVE to get an extra 25 cents per gallon on your first tank. You can cash out anytime right to your bank, PayPal, or a gift card for Amazon and other brands. Just download the free Upside app and use promo code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus on your first tank. That's code SAVE for a 25 cents per gallon bonus.